Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Running On Emotion. I'm Alistair Eakin, and I've been speaking to some of the biggest names in British sport. It's a podcast about the role of emotion in sport, from pride to fear, from anger to joy, and all stops in between. In this season finale, we're talking about one of the most extreme emotions, one of the toughest to control and channel, one of those that can really derail your sporting challenge if you get it wrong. We're talking about anger. It's not always discernible in elite sportsmen and women, but it's quite obviously a powerful motivational force, almost primeval in some respects. It's instinctive, it's often unreasoning, and it can be enormously destructive. The best athletes find ways of directing it into a positive energy, but it is hard, really hard to do. My guest had to find a key to this on a regular basis, as someone involved in a one-on-one combat sport that has a rich history spanning thousands of years. As an all-action boxer, an entertainer in the ring and a warrior to his core, every time he stepped inside the ropes, he had to channel his energies into the more productive element of anger, aggression. Born in Nottingham, my guest fought his way through the super middleweight ranks to become a four-time world champion, and he finished a glittering 13-year professional career with a record of 33 wins and just two defeats. Of all his opponents, none riled and angered him so much as his greatest rival, George Groves, with whom he had two epic fights, the last of which was in front of 80,000 people at Wembley Stadium. He is Carl the Cobra Frotch, who joins me from his home in Nottingham. Carl, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Very nice to talk to you. We'll address the Groves rivalry in detail perhaps in a little while. Obviously a rich seam of emotional material in there. You've been so successful through the years. When you reflect on it, were you driven, do you think, primarily by emotion or was it more of a kind of tight-focused discipline that made you become what you were? I think you need to understand how your emotion works and, and kind of separate that from just normal, I don't know, cognitive reactions to anything, I suppose. But I'd like to think that Passion drove me, the desire to want to succeed in boxing when I realised that my life was going to be pretty um, limited in terms of having nice things if I didn't do something pretty special. I, I had a job, I was working for a telecommunications company in an office and I did various jobs around bars and pubs because I grew up in pubs. I was just ticking over, making ends meet. So I think I had a big desire to succeed and, and to try and better my life, as well as being really, really addicted to boxing. I love the sport. I just love boxing. I love punching in the bag. I loved on the pads. I quite enjoyed running, which I can't stand now. But I did it every day for so long. It's nice to not have to do it. So, yeah, I think it's a bit of both emotion and, and the fact that I actually wanted to do it to better my life. So I want to ask you about your very early years and the origins of your, your love of boxing, which is so deep. Your, your dad fought, didn't he? Do you think there was a little bit of this being in the blood for you? Yeah, potentially. My dad boxed. He had about 20, I'm sure he had about 26 amateur fights. But that was out of Morton Hall, Borstall and Lincoln Prison. I've got 26 in my head for some reason. He, he lost his last fight, which was the only fight he lost. But I don't know if that's just another... Just sounds good, doesn't it? But yeah, he definitely boxed. He's quite a hard man, my old man. He's, his mum and dad, so my grandparents, came over after World War II from Krakow in Poland. And my granddad, Wojciech, proper hard man, real hard case. I can remember him quite vividly because he died when I was about 20, 21. I can remember he used to batter my old man quite bad with a... Well, I won't go into the gruesome details, but he had a hard upbringing, my dad. He left home when he was 14. Um, got expelled from school. He ended up in a ball stall. 
then a young man's offender centre, then a detention, and then and then Lincoln Prison. I think he did two years in Lincoln Prison. So he was quite a tough man as well. He worked the doors as well for years, my dad. But his love of boxing and the fact that he realised how much discipline you get from it and, and respect for your elders and yourself as well and self-control. I think he, he just took me and my older brother Lee down to the Phoenix Amateur Boxing Club in Gedlin, which isn't far from where I grew up as a kid in Colic in Nottingham. I think he was just chucking his two boys into a boxing club because he didn't want them to go down the route that he went down just hanging around on the streets and getting up to no good so boxing took up quite a lot of my time and a lot of my life from the age of eight years old so it's quite early in my introduction to boxing so that would have been the first time that you went to a boxing gym what are your memories of that they're pretty special kind of places aren't they they're different they've got a certain code a certain smell a certain feel yeah they have i can remember quite clearly walking in the gym and seeing the bright red bags hanging and seeing a guy called Dominic Travis and, and Chris Slatcher who probably won't mean anything to anyone. Dominic Travis ended up being my amateur coach for a couple of my fights many years later. And I can just remember seeing the guys on the bags and being really impressed by the speed and the combination punchings, like the punching body and head and letting combos go. And there was someone in the boxing ring moving around having a little spa. I was at a karate club as well for a couple of years from the age of six. So I did two years of karate, didn't really enjoy it, but I was still doing all the all the moves, the kicks and the punches and the, the stretching, there's quite a lot of flexibility involved in karate. But I never really had any interest. But yeah, the smell of the gym as well. I remember putting the bag mitts on and the, the smell of the stale sweat, but it's like it's like a nice smell now. When I, when I go back into the Phoenix Club, which I've visited lately, it brings back a childhood memory when I smell the gloves and like your hands stink after you finish because as a kid you don't wrap your hands up in bandages you just put your hands in somebody else's sweaty gloves who's who's just finished with them but yeah that's that's how it was and the sun was shining through the glass lantern roof or it'd be a plastic roof probably so it was a flat roof with a plastic lantern on the top and um, it was just blazing hot middle of the summer and yeah I was impressed by the guys that were hitting the bags and pads and it's amazing, really, when, you, when I think back to so many years ago that I can remember it quite vividly. Did it give you that buzz straight away when you walked in that place and you saw those things, you smelt what you smelt? Was it kind of instantaneous for you? I think it was because I used to watch my dad working out in his garage. So my dad used to lift a few weights and he had a big sandbag hanging up from, from one of the joists that run across the ceiling. And I was always impressed with him smacking the bag and thinking, oh, that looks really cool. And then when I went down to the boxing club... I can um, remember being very impressed at some of the lads moved in there thinking, oh, I want to be able to do that. Just looking at them hitting the bags and watching them on the pads and that and sparring was just quite an impressive sight for me. Most people, I don't know, some people might not be impressed by that, but I, I looked at it and thought, wow, that looks really cool. And I, I wanted to do it immediately. So you, your dad obviously had these brushes with the law, but he, he loved the outdoors, didn't he? The rough and tumble. Do, do you think some of that steeled you in some way for the physical nature of what was to come your way? Yeah, most definitely. I think me and my older brother, Lee, and my younger brother, Wayne, not so much my younger brother, because he's four years younger than me, so he kind of got left out when me and my older brother, Lee, used to get up to mischief and, and go and play in Collet Woods. And, and, you know, the whole summer holidays back then, sort of in the 80s and early 90s, I can just remember it being a red-hot, like, eight-week summer of just pure desert heat. We had motorbikes, like scramblers, and we used to go down there and, and, and fall off the bikes and scrap our arms. Still got scars on the back of my elbow now from some bad falls and that across my legs. And when I think about what we used to do at like 10, 11 and 12 years old, scrambling motorbikes around and climbing trees and building rope swings and falling down dikes and trying to swim across the Trent. I wouldn't let my 10-year-old son Rocco do that. I, I don't even let him out of my sight, to be honest. Madness. We was, pro we was real rough kids, but I don't know if that's just how it was back then. All my mates were with me. It was all the same, so it was the same for most of us. But we was rough kids, and I think my rough upbringing and being quite tough. My mum and dad split up when I was six years old as well, and I stayed with my dad for a couple of years before moving to secondary school, and then I moved in with my mum and my older brother. But I learnt from quite a young age... I'm going to have to fend for myself here if I don't. No one's going to... It sounds a bit harsh, but no one's going to feed me if I don't If I don't look after myself. And I learned to cook and I learned to shoplift. I got through and I was very young age. Very, I was a kid. I was eight, nine, ten years old. when I was six when my mum and dad split up. But I lived with my mum until I started secondary school. So from the age of six to the age of 11 when I started getting comp, I had quite a few years on my own. Like I can remember being on my own a lot. I think that toughened me up as well you know, mentally more than physically, because I was always quite small and skinny. 
I left school, I was probably five foot three and really skinny, such a late developer as well. I couldn't get into any of the bars with my friends because I couldn't get served. Even though I had my driving license at 17, they'd like look at the driving license and then look at me and say, yeah, right. I was like, yeah, where did you get this from? Like, <laughs> I got that when I passed my test and they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> so it wasn't a bad thing because I couldn't go out with my friends because they, they was all getting up to no good and I was just, I was just at home. Your mum as you mentioned, ran pubs in and around Nottingham. So that was an environment that you grew up in. So you presumably witnessed your fair share of fights. Was it a regular means back in the day of, of settling disputes? And, and what impact did those have on you, if any? She used to take on all different pubs in, in rough areas. So we used to take the bad pubs and try and make them good. So my mum was a good landlady. She was quite, good, she was quite business savvy. But we used to have all sorts of aggro in there. Me and my older brother, quite regular, would be like back to back. Like we'd have people on our side in the pub, but there'd be a load of people from somewhere else, and they'd just be fighting. And there'd be stalls, like the Wild West sometimes. I mean, even in Newark, because I was a young kid in Newark, I was 14, 15 years old, and I can remember being pinned up against the wall by the local hard man by my throat. And my grandma jumped on his back and started putting her fingers in his eyeballs. And I thought, go on, grandma, give him some. But that was because he got all of my younger brother weighing on the pool table and started pouring beer all over his face and down his... And I thought, that's my little brother there. So I pushed the big guy out of the way and he got hold of me around the throat. My grandma jumped on him. And before you know it, it was like tables and chairs. And my mum always ended the argument because she used to wallop him with a big right hook. <laughs> my stepdad never really used to get involved. He was quite a pacifier, he was, but... I mean, it wasn't like that all the time, but when we was running the pub in, in Radford in uh, Nottingham, the Rose and Crown, that was on Alfreton Road, and it's quite rough, a lot of drugs and a lot of dodgy dealings going off. I can remember scrapping in that pub every weekend, every Saturday, Friday or Saturday night, there'd be a fight. I'd be going to bed, ice in my hand, wiping the blood off, thinking to myself, that's another shirt ripped in half, my favourite Ben Sherman shirt in half. And yeah, it was just how it was, to be honest, back then. But it's changed a lot now. But that wasn't fighting controlled. That was presumably anger, out-and-out aggression, probably in a variety of the people that you were scuffling with, quite a lot of alcohol involved, I'm guessing, amongst some of them. So very, very different in terms of what you obviously went on to do by way of boxing proper. What I'm trying to get at, I suppose, is how much did that inform your subsequent career? I think it just helped with my mentality and my mindset and being rough and tough. Because I boxed from the age of eight right up until about 14, 15. I always had good balance. I could always throw a jab and a right hand. I could always dodge shots. And I knew how to stand. I knew how to shape up. I knew how to throw a point. A lot of people think they can fight and they can't. You ask them to hit one of them, them balls at the fair. And you can see, by the way, they stand in front of it and swing away. They throw it from the hip, they, they swing their arm around like a lunatic and probably miss the bloody thing and fall over. And that's how most people fight. It, it, fights usually end in about 15, 20 seconds and they end with a, people rolling around on the floor. Whenever I got into an altercation in a bar from about the age of 19, that's when I was actually getting involved in fights where I actually knew what I was doing in terms of, right, this is a street fight, but I ain't going to end up on the floor having a roll around. I'm keeping my distance and if anybody comes for me, I'm just going to knock them spark out. That's in my head. I'm going to hit them before they hit me. And nine times out of ten, it'd end with me throwing one punch, whether it be a jab or a right hand. And half the time, don't get me wrong, I did not want to fight. The amount of times I've talked my way out of a fight or talked somebody, because a lot of the times these guys are your friends. They're your mates, you play pool with them, but they've had too many drinks. And then when it gets to 11 o'clock or whatever time the last order was, you ring that belly like, like, let's sleep, mate, now we're done. Oh, just give us another drink. One more, one more. And I was a 19, 20-year-old kid telling a 45, 50-year-old bloke, you've got to go home now, we're not serving anymore. And he's like, well, I'm a regular and I know about this and I'm this and I'm that and they tell you all the stories and they big themselves up. And it's like, listen, mate, you've got to go home. And then they get upset. And it, I'm there with my big brother. We always defended each other. And a lot of the times you'd be having a fight with someone you know, which is a shame. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I can't stand alcohol because from a young age, I, I see people who are my friends who I'd play football with or go out onto the beer garden and have a game of Skittles, just chuck this wooden ball at these wooden pins, a bit like bowling, but different. And then later on in the night when they're drunk, they turn into somebody totally different and they're not your friend. And I couldn't understand, I couldn't get my head around it. I was like, why is he being how he is? I can't be doing with this. And then they'll end up having a fight with you. And then the next day they come around and they apologise and they want to make up. But the only thing that I could put that down to was alcohol. So I've never been a drinker, never been a fan of alcohol. I just don't. I, I barely drink now. I can't drink. I'm a proper lightweight. 
You made your professional debut in March 2002, York Hall against Michael Pinnock in front of, what, a couple of hundred people. Do you remember the emotions of that big first step? It must have felt like a big first step. How, how were your nerves, for instance? Yeah, very nervous. I used to be quite a nervous amateur and, and the nerves was just, just the anticipation of the actual bout rather than the bout itself. As soon as the first bell went, the nerves were gone. But I always wanted to succeed. I, I don't like losing. I don't think anyone really likes losing, but I always wanted to do well and and prove to myself that I could do something. I was confident in the fact that my coach, Rob McCracken, who played a massive part in my mind, made me headstrong and made me a different person. He, he changed my personality, McCracken did over the years. He gelled me into a different person. But I can remember being nervous and I can remember the ring walk thinking I was I was walking down the green mile to be executed at the end of it. And when I got in the ring and the bell went, I was fine. I was in the zone, throwing the jabs, throwing the right hands, thinking that the opponent's too slow. He can't hit me with that jab, it's too slow. His right hand was coming over. I saw it coming a mile away. I thought, I don't want to give Michael Pinnock any stick because he was a journeyman and he was a, I think he was a cruiserweight journeyman. He hardly ever got stopped, but he lost more fights than he won. But it was a tough fight for my pro debut because he was a lot heavier than me. But that's, that's just how it works when you first turn pro. You fight people who are a bit heavier than you, give a bit of weight away but they're not in your league. After the first round, I realised I'm going to beat him. It's just a matter of when. But yeah, I was nervous on the ring walk. The small gloves, the 10-ounce Cleto Reyes, that was the name, that was the brand of the glove. I can remember thinking, there's no padding in these gloves. Like I, I can feel my knuckle straight through the glove onto my chin. I was like punching myself in the chin thinking, when I hit him with this, it's either going to break my hand or break his head, one or the other, because they're that hard. And um, sure enough, when I started landing shots around his eyes, his eyes opened up and caught and his face was swelled. And I was thinking, this is brutal. This is horrible. Like, it's like a bare knuckle fight. It was almost like a street fight, but controlled. Because as an amateur, you wear 10-ounce gloves, but they are more padded. The padding's at the front. Sponge padding, you land the glove. It doesn't really hurt your hands. doesn't really hurt your opponent. But in the professional game, them small gloves was probably one of my earliest memories and my earliest reality. Welcome to the professionals, because this is a serious business. Like you throw a body shot and you can feel the ribs or you can feel the elbow if you hit the elbow and it hurts your hand. You throw a shot to the head. Because I was always cautious of hurting my opponent as well. As much as I want to win and as much as metaphorically I would do anything to win. You know, I'd cut the guy's throat if it meant winning. And that's a metaphor, by the way. But I'd do anything to win. And I can remember hitting him with a right hand to the side of the head. And then I turned to the side and threw an uppercut. And I felt my knuckle land on his chin. And his head came up. And the ref had not stopped the fight. And he was still there, like, slumped on the ropes. And I was looking at the ref. And it's all split second. And I just thought, I'm going to put another shot into him. And I threw a big uppercut again. And landed right on the front of his, his... His head was facing the canvas, facing down. And I can remember bringing an uppercut up. And I thought to myself, I can't hit him anymore. Like, I just can't hit him anymore. And I sort of stood back and the ref jumped in and it was fight over. And I thought, I'm glad he stopped that fight there because I felt like I was really damaging him. Like, it felt brutal. But that went, as I had more and more fights, the feeling of, um, I don't know, empathy or feeling sorry for the opponent, it left. That soon left me because when I was on the other end of it, getting hit with shots and they don't stop hitting you, you soon realise it's me or him and you best believe it ain't going to be me. You've touched on something I really want to explore in a moment or two, Carl. Can I first, though, ask you about the mentality of a boxer as he steps into the ring? I imagine your senses must all be on red alert because, as you've described, unlike most athletes, it's not really stretching a point, is it, to suggest that you're about to enter a very dangerous place, damage is done there. How do you handle that kind of emotion when you step through the ropes as a professional, you've had such a long amateur career and you've gone through all the emotions. So you're kind of used to it. You know you're going to be feeling nervous. You know you're going to be feeling a bit weak early on. Like when you're jabbing the pads, you, you're not a, you don't feel as sharp or as strong. You feel like you're breathing heavy straight away. You feel tired. Your legs are jelly and you've got butterflies in your stomach. Your arms feel weak. And I was walking to the ring for Michael Pinnock and I can remember just feeling so drained and nervous and... and and horrible it's like I wanted to walk out the other way and go there's the ring let's walk that way and go out the back of the building no one will ever know it's like you don't want to go through with it but I, I think for me that's like a natural feeling because I don't think there's anything normal about wanting to fight somebody I mean there's, there's, a, there's a saying fight or flight and it's some people stand and fight and some people want to run away I think 90% of people would want to run away Can you describe the intensity Carl of when the bell rings the way your survival instinct kicks in, your training, obviously the adrenaline, the concentration, 
and your capacity as well to absorb quite a lot of blows, quite apart from delivering them. A lot of it's natural. A lot of it comes naturally. I can remember sparring as a kid with people who were bigger and stronger than me and just like making my nose bleed and hurting me in the eye. Your eye would be bruised and swelled up and you think, I've got a black eye now tomorrow morning. But when you've done that as a kid and then you box as an amateur and I had so many fights as a junior, then I came back at 19, I boxed as a senior and I'd, I was an open international for England. So I boxed for England quite a lot. When you get in the ring as a professional, you're kind of accustomed to to getting punched in the face and, and trying to hurt your opponent. Even though the professional game is a totally different sport, what I mean by that is the punches hurt a lot more and your hands hurt when you land shots. And, and, and it's a bit more serious. It's, it's more like a street fight, a professional fight. How does it feel to be punched in the face? Well, it's not nice. It doesn't ever become normal to take a shot. But the idea is to not get hit with shots. And when you're good at boxing, and I wasn't bad, I won four world titles, you don't get hit that much. Obviously, I get hit with shots and I take shots. But in a 33-fight career, I only lost twice. And I lost to a guy who was the best in the world, never beaten since he was 12 years old, Andre Ward. And that was on points in a fight where I didn't really feel like I'd had a fight, to be honest. He hit me with a few jabs, hit me with a few right hands, got a hold of me, made it awkward, made it messy, and beat me on points in a very close fight. And the other one I lost was Mikel Kessler. Now, that was a tough, gruelling fight over 12 rounds. We did it twice, so we've had an hour and 12 minutes of, of punching lumps out of each other, 36 minutes twice. And, you know, I got hit with a lot of shots. But... When you're fit and strong and you've done all the sparring, 120 rounds of sparring and you're taking shots, you kind of get used to it. And even even if you get hit a lot over 12 rounds, when you're good and you can block shots and you know how to roll and ride the shots and just keep out of the way of the shots, it's only the shots that you don't see coming that hurt you. So you can get a jab in the face and you can get the odd right hand that just skims past you or hits you on the side of the head as you move your head out of the way. And you don't really feel them, the little marks and little bangs and bumps. But it's when you get hit with one flush, clean on the chin, straight down the pipe, and you didn't see it coming because you was thinking about throwing a shot yourself. I don't know, you've slipped a jab, you're thinking about the uppercut, and the guy's threw a right hook and you didn't see it coming. They're the ones that hurt you. George Groves hit me with one of them in round one of our first fight. And um, you don't think all that hurt and that stinging. You're concussed and you have a little momentary blackout if you go down. And you don't feel pain, you just feel dizzy and you feel like your legs are gone. You feel like you've had too many pints of Guinness. Probably for me, two pints of Guinness. <laughs> for most people, it'd be 10 pints. I never look back and think my career was painful. It didn't really hurt. The training was more painful than the fighting. So you must get used to it. You get used to getting hit. To reframe that question, maybe, what does it make you feel? Not, not in terms of the physical pain, perhaps, but you know, if somebody punched me in the face, I think I'd be angry about it. Did it make you angry? Um, no, because as an amateur, it was land your shot on the scoring target area of the body or head to score a point. And you've got a red button and a blue button the judges have. You're in the red corner or the blue corner. And you've got to land your shots to score points. But as a professional, sometimes yeah, I can remember getting hit with a shot, different fights, different opponents. But when George Groves hit me with a shot, I was very angry and very annoyed because I didn't like him. It wasn't the fact that he hit me in the face and it hurt. It was the fact that he just had the cheek to hit me in the face and put me on the floor in round one. Then I'd be angry thinking, I've got to get you back now. Now I'm, now I'm going to get you back. Now who are you on? I ain't going to stop till I get you. But that's bad because that's a bad emotion and you can't fight on that emotion. You can't be angry in a boxing match. But he wind me up into a frenzy. So I think to answer your question, most of the time, I don't really feel offended by getting punched in the face by the opponent. I, I get hit and I think, well, I'm, I'm trying to hit you, you're trying to hit me. This is a sport. And I can understand the question. People say, what's it like to get punched in the face? I'm like, well, if you punched me in the face now, it would really hurt and I'd be really angry. And <laughs> I'd want to I'd say to you, why have you done that and maybe give you a slap around the face? But in a boxing ring, you get hit in the face, you expect to get hit in the face. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So we're talking about emotions and talking about anger in particular, but I think perhaps a better word for most of your circumstances, Carl, particularly given what you just said, would be aggression. So what role does aggression play? You know, in order to win, you have to have it, don't you? Standing back and being hit quite obviously isn't an option. Is that aggression generated naturally by the environment you find yourself in, by the training that you've done? I think it's controlled aggression. So you've got to be aggressive. But being aggressive in boxing is to just throw more punches anytime I've ever fought on an emotion anger or tried to be aggressive in a, in a nasty way it's never worked for me never worked and I play a lot of tennis now and I play a lot of golf and if you load up and trying to hit this golf ball really hard anyone who plays golf will relate to this you're trying to hit the ball and you try and smack it it either flies off the foot of the club and goes off to the right or you top the ball and you you miss it and it goes nowhere. But the minute you're relaxed and there's no pressure and you're, I don't know, if you're on the range and you've got a basket of 50 balls and it doesn't matter if you hit two or three wrong, you're just hitting them. You're just relaxed and you hit a sweet one and it just goes flying straight over the fence at the back of the range because you've hit it good. So what I'm saying is the more relaxed you are and the more controlled you are and the less emotion involved in the fight, the better it is, much better because you're relaxed and you're calm. So it's all about controlling that aggression because you do get angry in fights sometimes, but but not often. I was very controlled and I'd get hit in the face with a heavy shot and I'd just think to myself, you got me there, good shot. Yeah, you got me. I mean, I'd often say good shot to my opponent or give him a little nod as if to say, yeah, you got me there. And that's the skill, isn't it? That line that you're treading and you're treading a lot of lines actually inside the ring. We've spoken about that idea that you could be seriously hurt in the ring. And you touched on the notion that you could also seriously hurt your opponent. Is it necessary mentally to to almost want to do that? I'm really interested by this fine line between exercising your skills to the max and knowing that you do run the risk of doing lasting damage. Fortunately, I've never hurt anybody and, and caused them any serious problems. I, I, I have got a joke where I say people have been cobra'd because my ring name was the Cobra. And if they get cobra'd, they're never the same again. And, and Lucian Butte, after the beating I gave him in five rounds for my first fight after I lost to Groves. Sorry, after I lost to... I never lost to Groves, by the way, just to clear that up. Yeah, we better clarify that. <laughs> <laughs> after I lost to um, Andre Ward in America on points, my first fight back was against Lucian Butte. I don't think he was the same again after the beating I gave him. It was a five-round beatdown, and I've never hit anybody so hard so often. By that time, I was so well-conditioned, I was quite annoyed by losing to Andre Ward. And I was a world champion previously. I've won the WBC belt twice. And this was an IBF world title. There's three major belts, really, that are recognised by top professionals. That's the WBC. That's the green and gold one. Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, all my heroes, Muhammad Ali. They've all had them belts. Sonny Liston. And that's the belt, the WBC. That's the main one for me. The IBF and the WBA, which is the World Boxing Association and the International Boxing Federation, the red one, the IBF, and the black one, the WBA, they're sort of the, the other two major belts. But I hold the WBC in highest regard. But when I lost my titles to Andre Ward and then came back to England, back to Nottingham, my hometown, and fought Lucian Butte, after losing to Ward, I was so motivated to, to succeed and, and do well. I can remember the whole training camp thinking, I'm going to absolutely destroy this geezer. He's not fought anybody like me. But he's boxed a couple of other people where you say, okay, they're decent fighters, but they're not as fit as me for 12 rounds. They don't punch as hard as me. And they're not prepared to, I don't know, they're not prepared to die as far as I'm concerned. I'd, I'd go in that ring in my head. And I was never going to quit. I was never going to go down and not get up unless my body wouldn't allow me to. And I was never going to stop hitting my opponent until the referee got involved and stopped or the towel came in. I became a seasoned professional. I became a bit of a horrible man, like not angry, but I just feel like I became a different person, a, a person that I could never be now. When I watch my fights back, I look back and think, I can't believe I used to box. I can't believe that was me in there doing that. I, like, I couldn't think of anything worse now than boxing and fighting. And, and my mindset, when I got in with, with Lucian Butte, I was literally prepared to kill him. 
and prepared to die. And I hit him so hard in round one, round two. And there's a point in round four when I got him on the ropes and the referee was about to jump in. And I moved to my left to kind of stop the referee from jumping in. Instead of letting the ref jump in and the fight's over and I've won, I wanted to hit him more. Do you know what I mean? My mindset was so different. That was 2012. I turned professional in 2002. So this is 10 years later. This is after I've tasted defeat twice. This is after I've been through all my training camps. And the person I was when I was a seasoned professional, mentally and physically, was a totally different animal. The difference between a chihuahua, my little doggy that I've got, and a Rottweiler. You know what I mean? That was me. That was me as an early pro chihuahua. Me as a, as a winning and losing world champion, looking to regain a belt. I'm the Rottweiler and I will absolutely tear you apart and rip your head off and not stop until you're on the floor bleeding to death. And that sounds horrible. And that doesn't sound like me talking. I was never like that as, a, as an early pro. I was never like that as an amateur. All I wanted to do was hit my opponent to score a point and win the fight on points. As I became a, a fully-fledged professional, I just became a bit of a... I was a dangerous man, yeah. Very dangerous. Like I just... I'd do anything to win the fight and it wasn't for the fame and fortune. It was to win the belt and for my own personal pleasure, really. It's a sick pleasure, really, boxing, when, you, when you're at top level because you really want to hurt your opponent and you, you don't really care less. I know George Groves has hurt a guy called, um, was it Chudanov? He beat Chudanov for the IBF title and I know that he's struggling now and he's he got, he got some damage to the brain. I think he had a brain bleed and I don't know if he's in a wheelchair but I'm sure he's partially sighted. He, he can't speak. And you look at people like that and it's so sad and it's such a shame and, and you realise how brutal the sport is. Mm-hmm. But when I was in the sport and when I was trying to win the fights, I didn't give it a second's thought. I got paid really well. I won world titles. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the training. I enjoyed becoming this, this kind of animal that I talk about when I was fighting as a professional. At the start of camp, the transition I'd make from week one to week 12 in my mind and body, the way I felt and the way I looked and what I could physically do, I used to love the transition. I used to think of myself as turning into something like a superhero, but a bad one, a real bad mofo, and I loved it. <laughs> Extraordinary to hear you talk like that. It, it, it really puts everything in context. And now I wouldn't go back there. No, well, you've clearly moved on and you know become quite a different person well i'm i'm civilized now i've got three kids i've got a 10 year old boy and a seven and a five year old two girls and i'm a civilized human being and i'd rather you know i've been in a bar and people have knocked my drink out my hands and people have stood on my toes and someone wants a picture with me because i'm world champ oh carl frotch legend and they've got their hand around my neck and they've got beer in one hand and they're like squeezing me too hard and putting the fist up against my chin. I'm like, look, mate, leave it out. Just calm it down. Just let's have a picture. And then they try and turn on you and say, oh, you think you're too big for your boots. You're arrogant. I'm like, look, mate, and I, I don't want to fight with you. I don't want to hit you. I don't want to get hit. <laughs> you might you might beat me up. Who knows? I don't want to fight. I just want to have a nice night out. Let's just shake hands. Let me buy you a drink. Come on, let's have the photo, but let's just be nice. Being nice is a lot easier. Being nice is a lot nicer. It's comforting to hear you talk about how, how you are now, Carl, for sure. Maybe it's kids. Kids may have softened me a bit. Unquestionably. Your trainer, Rob McCracken, such a key influence in your career. What, what kind of person is he? I never really had a father figure growing up. And Rob McCracken kind of came into my life when I was 24 years old when I boxed in the, in the World Championships in Ireland. I'd taken to him straight away. I knew him from when I was an amateur and he was a professional. But when I met him and started to train with him down at the Lennox Lewis College in London in Clapton, we became really close, but not close like like mates. Because like you can mess around with your mates and, and wind them up and take the mickey out of them a little bit. I'd never do that to Rob because I got so much respect for him. It was like a father figure. Matter of fact, just get down to work, do your business. Don't worry about what anyone's thinking. Don't, don't be nervous. Just get the job done. And, you know, Rob McCracken needs all the credit for my career because, one, I probably would have never turned professional without Rob. And if I did turn professional, I don't think there's anybody that's, that's like him. He's unique. And he was such a massive influence on my mindset because I was a nervous amateur and I was a nervous professional. But he turned me into a machine mentally and physically, more so mentally than anything. McCracken turned me into an ultimate fighting machine who would literally go into the ring and really have no fear once that first round bell goes. And when I went back to my corner between each round, whether it was a good round or a bad round, I'd leave for the next round feeling like I was invincible, like I could beat anybody. As regards emotion as well, Carl, when it comes to Rob McCracken, he talked about educated aggression, controlled assault, didn't he? 
He did, yeah. He never got animated in the ring, in the corner. Even if you're having a bad round, he'd never lose the plot and, I don't know, give you a slap around the face or start shouting at you. But just the way he said certain things and the way he'd look at you, we had such a good connection, such a strong bond that I knew if I was in trouble or I knew if I needed to do something differently or if I needed to box or I need to go for the finish. When I boxed Jermaine Taylor and I literally had to stop him or I would have lost on points, for the last three rounds, I was literally putting everything into it and I wanted to be able to do that without McCracken and his, his methodical approach of controlled aggression in them last three rounds. And I got the win. I stopped him in, in the dying seconds of the last round in that first world title defence. And I don't know if there would have been anybody that could replace McCracken. But yeah, we worked well as a team and I had Rob through my whole career and um, we never had a contract. You know, I boxed, he got paid. He didn't do it for the money. We just had a, an unbreakable bond, an unbelievable relationship, just full of respect that's all we operated on from start to finish. Listen, you had some extraordinary fights, but I want to talk about George Groves. Your first world title fight in Manchester. He was a gobby upstart. You didn't like him. He angered you. Why and how? I've done guest speaks with Grovesy boys. So me and George Groves meet up in Manchester and we... We speak for an hour and entertain the fans. And I did ask him, I said to him, did you actually really think that I wasn't very good at boxing and I'd not done anything? And, that, you know, fighting Mikel Kessler, and I know I lost to Kessler, but it was a great fight for 12 rounds and he was a top world champion. Beating John Pascal in my first world title fight in 2008 to become WBC world champion. And then regaining my belt against Abraham and fighting Lucian Butte in that fight where I destroyed an unbeaten fighter. Did you really not think that I was very good or did you really think I was limited? Or Because you didn't give me any credit. And in the first fight, I was so wound up. And I don't know why I got myself so wound up. He don't need to give me credit. He don't need to acknowledge how good I was. But he, he wouldn't say anything that was good. And I used to spar George Groves. He used to come into sparring. He used to take my time with him. I put him over in sparring as well. I hit him on the chin and he fell over in sparring and he was a bit upset and... I was nice to him and I was all right with him. But then when he got himself in the position where he became the opponent, he was so disrespectful and I think he was obnoxious to the point where I wanted to slap him and, and, and discipline him like he was my child and say, listen, sit him down and point to him and say, you don't talk to people like this. <laughs> this is not how you address a champion. But it's ridiculous because why should he respect me? I'm his, as I'm his opponent, he doesn't need to respect me. He was like I was probably six, seven years earlier. And I couldn't get my head around it because I used to spar with him. He was friends with David Hay. David Hay's a real good friend of mine. We grew up together through the amateurs. We met on the England squad when I was like, I was 20, he was about 18. And when Groves was my first opponent in the first fight, I was so upset and angered by his disrespect and his inability to acknowledge my achievements. I really didn't like him. In fact, I hated him. I wanted to kill him. Like literally, I wanted to snap him in half. And then look at him on the floor and say, now look at you. Now what you got to say? And that's horrible, but that's what I felt. Like I wanted to really do some damage. And that's what got me knocked down in the first fight. I was so angry. I was reacting on emotion. I was angry and I, I hated him. And it's such a dangerous emotion to try and box on. As many fights as I had in my whole career, I'd never hated anybody so much, inside or outside the ring. And it totally clouded your judgment and perhaps more importantly, your skills. Yeah, it slowed me down. I was opening my arms up before I was trying to knock him out. I thought that I was going to get into the ring in Manchester in our first fight and just hit him on the chin and knock him out. Like I knocked him over in sparring and I was that wound up at the press conference and the weigh-in and come fight night and I'd not trained as good as I should have trained. I don't want to give any excuses because I went, was it seven or eight rounds or even nine rounds with him and I got put down in the first round and, and clawed my way back in. I, I, I've never been beat up so bad for six rounds in a fight. He put me down in round one and then he absolutely hit me with everything, including the kitchen sink, for the next five rounds. I got a six-round beating. My face was swelled up. My nose was broke. My eye was caught. My ears were ringing. My, my head was sore. My neck was killing me. I, I, I couldn't move for about two weeks. I, I, didn't, I couldn't get out of bed. My head was like a balloon. Fair play to him. He gave me a proper beating. But I won the fight. You know, I was still standing in round seven and round eight and I was still hitting him and he was tiring and he was getting weakened. But I'm an old veteran. I'm a seasoned pro and I ain't going to fall over and quit. I ain't going to sit down in my corner and not come out for the next round. 
And that's where the experience and that toughness from being around so many years and being in so many hard fights, he couldn't live with that. The first fight, I was doing a dance competition with my wife and that took up six weeks of my 12-week training camp. It was a dance show called Stepping Out on ITV. You can Google it and see me doing the bangro and doing the cha-cha-cha <laughs> and um, the rumba and all these silly dancers. And I pulled out of a bad back. I did officially have a bad back, just for the record. But I pulled out of a bad back and then I started taking training serious. So I had a six-week training camp for that first fight with Groves. I was not fit. I was not ready. I couldn't be bothered to fight him. I didn't think it was going to be a hard fight. I just beat Mikhail Kessler in a rematch. And I thought, I've beat Mikel Kessler in a rematch. I've been on pay-per-view on Sky. I'd just earned a couple of million quid. And I thought, you know what? Actually, I'm about ready to turn this game in now. I've, I've, I don't need to do anything else. Did you underestimate him? Yeah, he came along and it was like Eddie Hearn. I said to Eddie Hearn, I said, really, George Groves? He can't live with me. He's not good enough. He said, well, he's, he's mandatory for the IBF. And I said, well, this ain't going to be a big fight. I've just beat Kessler. Can I not go to America and fight? Chavez Jr. or have a rematch with Andre Warner, go to Vegas or something. I felt like I deserved more. And he's like, listen, this would be a good fight. This would be a domestic rival. George Groves is mandatory. He says, just knock him out then. Like he didn't inspire him, no problem. So I didn't train properly, didn't take him seriously. I was fuming because he was obnoxious and arrogant and disrespectful. And I almost paid dearly. And I nearly paid the ultimate price of getting beat up. But to be honest, I did get beat up for six rounds. Well, the rematch generated insane interest, didn't it? 80,000 people at Wembley, the biggest attendance of any post-war British fight. And crucially, Carl, you'd employed a psychologist, Chris Marshall, to help you deal with Groves's antics. How did he help you? Well, Chris Marshall was part of the, and I think he still is now, I think he works with Anthony Joshua as well. I think he was a cricket psychologist and he was just part of the set up at the English Institute of Sport in Sheffield. So the EIS in Sheffield where I trained because Rob McCracken was the performance director. He still is actually. He's doing really well for himself and he's, he's performed. I mean, we've had, we've had some great Olympic medals under Rob McCracken. But I was like, listen, I'm a tough, hard veteran, world champion. I don't need to talk to him about psychology. So I never, I never really used Chris Marshall. He was more of a friend. I used to chat to him about normal stuff and have a laugh with him and do a bit of training. And he was interested in boxing because I was world champion. We'd have good chats. And it wasn't until after the first fight with Groves when I so wound up and McCracken was like, Froch was like he's never been in that first fight with Groves. We need to make sure his head's right for the rematch. He said, why don't you have a chat with Chris Marshall just to kind of see where you are in your head. Just hear him out and, and just see if he can help you with your mind because that Groves boy really winds you up and I don't want you getting wound up again as bad. I was like, yeah, go on, I'll have a chat with him. And all of a sudden, I'm chatting to him, and it's it's like it's not Chris Marshall. It's like it's a, like a psychologist who's sitting there. And I was sitting there listening to him, and he was like, why do you think George Groves winds you up? What do you think it is about him? And then I'd answer the question and say, disrespectful. He's like, right, why do you think he needs to respect you? I'm like, well, because I'm world champ. First of all, he explained to me how the brain works. So you have an amygdala, which is like a honing beacon for danger. And when you see danger, you then respond to that danger. So if a snake came in this room behind me now, a snake, my amygdala would pick up on the danger and say, right, there's a snake. Where the hell's that come from? And then I'm going to do two things. I'm either going to try and kill the snake or get out of its way. And that's fight or flight. I'll probably try and kill it. I'll try and pick something up and chop it in half. Or you jump on the desk and get out of the way. So you respond in there. There's two ways you can respond to the amygdala honing beacon, and that's emotion or logic. And in the first fight with George Groves, every time I responded to his jibes, it was emotionally. I was angry. I was annoyed. I was, I was peed off. And that's bad response. In the rematch, what I did was, because of Chris Marshall's explanation on how the brain works, in the rematch, I just responded on logic. Okay, he's telling me this and he's being out of order and he's winding me or trying to wind me up. And I'm just going to be logical about it and say, listen, I'm not going to let you get under my skin. I'm not going to let you wind me up. I've already beat you once. I'm bigger and better than that. I never engaged. It must have really wound him up because it was even got to the point where, because I never bit, when, whether it was on the television doing a pre-fight build-up or the press conference. And he was baiting you still, wasn't he, at that he point? I mean, he was whispering in your ear at Wembley when you were doing the launch. He was, exactly. And I'll just give him a little shove. Now, that looked like an emotional response, but I knew I was going to shove him out of the way anyway just to see if he got anything in him. I mean, that was a little tester for me to him because... On the street, if somebody's having a go at me, when I grew up in pubs, if someone's in your face giving you some of that, you deal with it there and then. You don't say, I'll meet you next week and we'll sort this out. Usually he who strikes first is the, is the victor. He who dares wins. And 
I used to always get in there first because I know that if I get in there first, the chances are I'm, I'm up in my odds of winning by by about 90%. And I, I did want to see what Groves was going to do at, at Wembley at the press conference. I wanted to see how he responded because I thought it was this weak character and I thought that it was all a big show and it was all a facade and he, he didn't really believe in himself as much as he did and he's, he's not as tough as what he thinks he was. Because the first fight, he had a good go. He dropped me in round one. He beat me up for six rounds. But then I made him quit. I know the referee jumped in. There's a big debate about the fight was stopped too early by Howard Foster. And if you ask 100 boxing fans, was the fight stopped too early or not? It'd be a 50-50 split, maybe even 60-40. They would say the fight was stopped too early. But Howard Foster could see what he could see. And that fight needed stopping because Groves was slumped down. His arms were by his side. He was hurt. I was loading up on the side of his head. And it was dangerous. So um, the rematch, what Chris Marshall did was made me respond logically and made me just disregard Groves. It doesn't matter what he does or what he says. I'm not even going to engage. I'm not going to buy at all. You stripped out the anger, basically. Yeah, to the point where like, I was using the logic at home with my wife, and I still do now. It's like I use it with my wife and kids, and when the kids are going mental and Rocco's got his, his sister in a headlock, I'm like, Rocco, let go, and he won't let go. I was just like, right, and I'll, I'll, I'll unhinge his arm from around the neck, and i say, listen, you shouldn't do that, should you? Apologise to your sister. Give her a kiss, give her a cuddle. I don't shout and scream anymore because... Unless I have to, because sometimes it gets mad. You've got three kids and a wife, it's hard. I'm, I'm outnumbered by women as well. Well, there's only me and Rocco and there's three girls in my house. <laughs> but that logic and emotion thing I use, and I used it so well with Groves in the rematch. And when I got in the ring with George Groves at Wembley, so when I did my ring walk in front of 80,000 fans at Wembley, it was the biggest fight post-war in British boxing history. And when I walked to the ring to meet Groves, I was like, tunnel visioned I was almost like hypnotised I knew that when I got in that ring I didn't want to look at him I didn't want to see his face and as an amateur I boxed a guy called John Pierce, who was a Commonwealth Games gold medalist and I'll never forget getting in the ring really nervous but I wanted to look at him in his face and, and, and meet his eyes and look into his eyes and let him know listen I'm here to beat you tonight you might think you're going to win you're the massive favourite but I'm going to come I'm going to beat you up I won that fight by the way in a very close fight but when I got in the ring, John Pierce turned his back on me and I never got to look at him. I never got to look in his eyes until it was too late. So the referee brings us together. And through the whole announcements, I was looking at his back and he was warming up, shaking away shadow boxing. And I was thinking, turn around and look at me. I was getting really wound up. Come on, look at me, look at me. I want to look at you. And he came over, turned around, touched the gloves and then went back to his corner. And that was it, the bell went. And I never really got into it properly. I won the fight very close on a unanimous decision. It was one of my hardest fights ever. But I remember thinking to myself before the ring walk, well, weeks before the fight, actually, I'm not going to look at him. I'm not going to look at this idiot. I'm going to just let him stare at the back of my head through the whole announcement. And then I'm going to go to work on him. I'm going to beat him and I'm going to knock him out. And I know I'm going to knock him out because I know once I hit him on the chin, he can't handle it. And that was part of the psychology. So Chris Marshall made me see things more clearly, made me use logic rather than emotion. I was never wound up. I was never angry. And I was just controlled and concentrating on myself and doing what I do best. And, and I got the result, devastatingly as well. Yeah, you finished it with a, a straight right hand, didn't you? In the eighth round, a perfect shot. It's gone down in boxing folklore. Michael Stello, legendary boxing commentator, called it the best punch you'll see in a British boxing ring. Presumably, Carl, at that point, all the anger that you, you might have been feeling previously dissolved into, what, elation? I'd be contradicting myself if I said all the anger went into elation because I wasn't angry. Honestly, when I walked to the ring, I was so calm. I was so relaxed. I was so confident. I'd never felt so good. I think one of the reasons why I felt so different and so good is because in the back of my mind, I knew it was the last time I was going to do it. I knew that was my last fight. I knew I was retiring. So when I was training for the Groves rematch, as hard as it was because I was 36 and my hands were in and my Achilles tendon was playing up, my elbows sore after every spot. I was held together with that elastic tape, that physio tape all around my elbows and around my ankle and on my back and on the side of my neck and my shoulder. Every day I was like held together with duct tape um, just to get me through the training camp. And I knew I can't do this anymore. This is my last fight. Groves even sent me a message on Twitter, direct message on Twitter. And he was doing countdowns like TikTok three weeks and his doomsday and I just blocked him on Twitter and that wound him up so he couldn't phone me he couldn't talk to me he couldn't direct message me on Twitter and because I knew it was my last fight and the last time I was going to be 
boxing. I kind of enjoyed it and soaked it in, but tunnel vision. And I was almost like I was hypnotized because I was so focused on, on the job. I enjoyed it, but when I look back, I can't remember it as much as I would have remembered it if I wasn't so tunnel visioned. When I hit him with that right hand and flattened him with his legs bent around his ear hole in an awkward position, I didn't even celebrate. I just walked to my corner and looked at Rob as if to say, yeah, I got him there. If he gets up, he won't be up for very long because he'll be going straight back down. And if I would have lost and, and that didn't go the way it would have been, I'd have been absolutely shocked because I was 100% convinced that's what was going to happen. I convinced myself, there's no way this kid can beat me. He's getting knocked out. I've trained so hard. All I've got to do is turn up. I turned up, did the job and went home and I retired because I knew I was going to retire. And I, I was offered a lot of money to box again, like silly money, money that would pretty much have sorted my great, great grandkids out. But people who just work for money have got a very shallow and a very boring life because you should work and do something that you're passionate about and you enjoy. And I didn't enjoy boxing anymore. The desire had gone. I'd done what I needed to do. I'd already beat Groves once, but everyone was moaning and bitching and complaining about the stoppage. I had to fight him again and set the record straight. And that's what I did. I fought him again. I did the job. I rendered him unconscious in front of 80,000 fans at Wembley Stadium. And that was my job done. And I thought, you know what? That'll do me. I'm finished. Carl, thank you so much for sharing your recollections, your memories, good times, and, and perhaps a few that weren't so good as well. Fascinating to listen to. You really did earn your reputation, didn't you, as a hungry, disciplined warrior in the ring. Your, your belt's obviously all the testament that you need. Carl, thank you so much for your time. No, pleasure. You've been listening to Running On Emotion with me, Alistair Eakin, an Eakin Media production for Audi. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, like and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our hashtag is Running On Emotion and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Sound is by Norman Goodman and the series producer is Andrew Sampson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>